Welcome back to Restore Gospel Podcast. I'm Mike Barrett. I'm Corey Stark. And we are here talking about some different aspects of the restoration. Uh, this series uh, is not meant to be offensive. It's entitled Mormonism. The Book of Mormon is not Mormonism. And we're just looking at some things that, uh, traditions that the restoration has been involved in uh, that's maybe given us a black eye to other Christians. Um, and we want to be clear that the Book of Mormon uh, doesn't teach some of these things that we've held up as a as a group of, of as a religion. Um, baptism is an amazing thing. The Book of Mormon states the first fruits of repentance is baptism. And uh, there was a, a something that came into the Restoration in Nauvoo called Baptism for the Dead. And it was before the church split. It's in the RLDS, the LDS side. And we're just going to look at what baptism is and, and if this idea of baptism for the dead uh, makes sense or was it something that wasn't of the Lord. So, Corey, take it away. Yeah, thank you, Mike. I appreciate that. I would just want to say up front that, you know, I don't pretend to be a, a scholar by any real stretch of the words. And I appreciate all the deep thought that has gone into so many papers and things online. I, I learned by reading from them. Um, there's a lot of work done by the LDS people and I'm not here to put down anyone in the RLDS or LDS religion. I, I just want to kind of take up an overview of some of these ideas and, and all this is to say, I, I don't want to dive too deep into what the theology specifically teach. I, I would rather just teach what the Book of Mormon says. I think that's really our objective. And so the good thing about the Book of Mormon is because of the truth that we can rely on. From within its covers, it can help us put down or at least compare other notions that have crept up through the Gentile worlds in in our era, in in the previous era, you know, in the 1800s, um, maybe even in previous generations. All these truths, you know, that have crept into the Gentile world are the reason the Book of Mormon came to us, so that we wouldn't stumble. So. Uh, while I don't want to go too deep in some of these things, we'll, we'll touch on them briefly. And um, I appreciate you kind of giving me this opportunity again, Mike. Um, I'm going to share my screen and uh, give me just a second while I get that going. This part two is going to focus on baptism for the dead. And I guess just to back up, at the end of our last session, I mentioned a couple verses. One was from the Bible that had to do with um, this idea that uh, the right hand of power, I, I just wanted to kind of conclude that last thought. There's this phrase that you read in, in Matthew that says, Jesus said, thou hast said, nevertheless I say unto you, hereafter shall you see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. And he says this to Caiaphas and those at his final jury hearing, and they find him guilty for these words. Well, the meaning of this goes back to some Hebrew and this idea. Um, I actually found a really good definition, at least one I agreed with from ChatGPT, which is this kind of new artificial intelligence thing. And I said, summarize what right hand of power meant in the New Testament. And it came up with these descriptions. And it's interesting because this is the contrast. While this metaphor evokes the image of a king or ruler sitting at his right hand, which was considered the most prestigious and powerful position in ancient times. The phrase is used in the Bible to indicate that Jesus shares the same authority and power as God. And that's what set these people off. That's literally why they killed him, because by saying, I'm on the right hand of God, 
wasn't to physically say I'm distinct and I'm sitting in another chair next to him saying I'm on the right hand was their way of saying I am. And so this explanation goes on to say, which means that he is fully God and is worthy of worship and obedience. It also indicates that Jesus is co-equal with the father and the Holy ghost and the Godhead. And that Jesus is not just a messenger of God, but is God himself who came to the world to redeem humanity. So I think that's pretty interesting from, you know, a supposedly non-biased opinion that that's what it states that phrase meant. And so I share this because that's one of the objectives that, uh, that's one of the objections rather that people share sometimes saying, well, didn't Jesus say he's on the right hand of God? Yeah, but the meaning was, and that's why they killed him because he said, I am God by that. And so um, kind of made the same statement right here, but the Book of Mormon says, Our Lord Jesus Christ, who sitteth on the right hand of his power, um, Hebraically speaking, that was the implication that Jesus was equal to God. Um, so it's it's a Hebrewism that we might not get in English, but that's what it meant to those people. Uh, the that's other, go ahead. I was just, that's an important, uh, I think that's an important thing that sometimes we gloss over and don't, don't focus on, but the, the fact that they killed Jesus and why, why did they kill him? Why was he so offensive to the powers that be? And one of that, one of the main points was the fact that they understood his claim, even though we debate over it now, but, but they understood the claim that he was, you know, the deity here on earth and that that was blasphemy to, to claim, you know, what he was claiming. Exactly. And, and, you know, when it comes down to it, those were the only words that Jesus spoke. You know, he was silent through everything else. He he finally literally said, I am God. That's that's why they killed him. Just mm-hmm. just nothing more, nothing less. And he never lied. <laughs> he was telling the truth. And this is hard for people in the restoration to understand this. Um, but that's why we have the Book of Mormon, because it says the same thing. So the other one I want to mention was first John five. And the inspired version and the King James read this the same way, but it's a verse that uh, seven and eight, these two verses are often used to argue the Trinity. And what's interesting about this is, first of all, the word Trinity never appears in any version of any Bible. It's a word that we, centuries after the fact, have used to try to describe God and the Holy Ghost and Jesus. But this this verse says uh, from First John 5, for there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. And there are three that bear witness in the earth, the Spirit, and the water, and the blood. And these three agree in one. Well, all I want to say about this is that um, historically, if you look at the manuscripts, this didn't exist in most New Testament manuscripts. Now, in the days of King James and that group of people who came up with the King James Version, it was the best they had in that day. Those people, those scholars, worked from about 12 different manuscripts. And we have to remember, uh, contrary to what we want to believe about this, uh, the the entire Old Testament and New Testament were not just given like the Book of Mormon. Here's one complete set of records, and it's trans. And here I'm going to give you the power to translate it. Nothing even close. There were bits and fragments and pieces, and sometimes the bits and fragments and pieces agreed with one another, and sometimes they didn't. And and so what we have as a Bible was the combination of many, many pieces of documents, 
you know, I picture this whole trunk of little manuscripts and things and they start pulling things out and comparing and, and that's what literally, I mean, became our Bible. And so in that, those days they had about 12 manuscripts available and not to put the King James Bible down, but today they can do a better job of translating because there's about 5,000 pieces of the New Testament, for instance, available. But in in the days, and this is, this is literally a thousand years after Christ, this is where this first scripture kind of came in. Um, in about the 10th century, uh, this Trinitarian University in Scotland became famous in this, about the 16th century for making it an official verse. But it, it got a little added later and it was kind of back added sometimes they would go through and edit some of the old manuscripts and put it in but this whole verse i just read wasn't part of the original text of the bible and and so scholars debate these things but if you take that out you don't really have you know and then you look at this right hand of power you don't really have any real leg to stand on um what's interesting to me when you go to the bible or from the bible to the book of mormon is how Clearly, the Book of Mormon teaches this. And again, this is the real point. What does the Book of Mormon teach? Mm-hmm. Uh, here's here's like four different verses uh, from Second Nephi. We have Nephi writing, The only true doctrine of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Ghost, which is one God without end. I mean, he he just ties all these three together as one God. Yeah, um, yeah I just, as you were talking with John, I, I just pulled that same uh, scripture up on my other screen here. Uh, that's one of my favorites in Second Nephi. Uh, I like the verse before it where it says, if, if you press forward, feasting upon the word of Christ and endure to the end, behold, thus saith the Father, ye shall have eternal life. And now behold, my beloved brethren, this is the way, and there is no other way nor name given under heaven whereby man can be saved in the kingdom of God. And then, and then that verse, and now behold, this is the true doctrine of Christ and the only and true doctrine of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, which is one God without end. Amen. And that's that is so beautiful. It's powerful, and it's it's so plain and precious and clear. Um, we we shouldn't be confused, but again, we are. And you know, we we have to realize that you know the Bible, for all the good that it does, it still has kind of a black eye. I mean, if we believe what Nephi's vision suggests that. It had been altered and added to and precious things removed. Um, we don't really know what we ended up with. You know, it's I'm not saying not to trust it, but we, we have to realize that we have a trustworthy source here. And and it's in the Book of Mormon. You know, Cora, this is something I hope I don't give anything away from my brother Shane, but we were talking yesterday and he made a comparison to the Rosetta Stone and how it came forth with, I think, three different languages on it. And it allowed us to to then gain insight into the knowledge of that language of the Hebrew uh, language. Um, and that the doctrine of who God is in the Book of Mormon is, is like that Rosetta Stone that unlocks all power for us. Understanding the nature of God is, is a key to unlocking uh, so many things, our relationship with him, understanding the atonement, the magnitude of the love that he has for us, that, that it's the power to change our hearts into something better. And yes. I, think, I think that's so important. Yes. You know, that's that's the message of the Book of Mormon. You know, when I've kind of, and, and I'm always learning, but I, 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 at least I always want to be learning, but I've realized that's the key to teaching in the restoration. And, and this is the jumping off point for a lot of 
uh, people in the church because they they hear this that God is is one God and it goes contrary to things they've heard elsewhere, and then they just can't have it anymore. And it's like, you know, we, we got to back up and not get so angry about this because, you know, it's easy to make mistakes because it's easy to be influenced by other things. And we have never really been taught to discern the difference. We've just been taught, oh, accept it because it came out of the early restoration. And, you know, the, the language that the Book of Mormon presents is undeniably true and clear regarding who God is. And if we understand who God is, we understand the salvation he offers. If we understand the salvation he offers, we understand how works tie into that. If we understand how works tie into that, we understand the type of life we need to leave and it, lead, and it can only be a life of a changed heart which comes through repentance. You know, so we, we get all of this, God and salvation and our, our change of heart. And it's so clear and it's so plain, but we have to be willing to accept who God is, the God that's taught through the Book of Mormon, where none of it will make sense. So, Yeah, and, um, and it's hard to look at the Book of Mormon without bringing in, or what the Book of Mormon says, without bringing in... Uh, other doctrines and things that came forth, we, we start to ask questions, but the only reason we're asking those questions is because of the muddiness that came after the Book of Mormon that brings up those questions. And so then you go diving into the Book of Mormon and try to substantiate your belief or your or your unbelief on certain topics. And that's not really how I don't think it was meant to be. It wasn't how it came forth. The Book of Mormon came forth with this plain gospel and then we, we've added other doctrines around it. And then we dive back into the Book of Mormon with those doctrines in our mind and try to substantiate it or try to uh, further understand or, or, you know, whatever way we're leaning in our mind, we'll go looking for that answer. And we, we pervert the, the plain gospel in the Book of Mormon again. And we're back to the, the beginning. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, as, as kind, righteous saints, we don't want to argue and contend. So there, there have become subjects least in the RLDS restoration that are off limits to discuss. You know, I even had, you know, a pastor call me as I was teaching a class series and I understand his heart, but he's like, Hey, our congregation has gone through a lot. Could you please not teach about God, you know, basically from the book of Mormon. <laughs> and it's like, uh, I, I, I mean, I feel bad that it's come down to things like that, but, but because we go in these other directions, then we come back to the book of Mormon and we can't answer the questions. And, and I think the reverse was intended Put everything else aside and read this book, read the Book of Mormon. And then when you learn it, you'll be able to understand and evaluate and, and say yes to the things that are true and no to the things that are false. Yeah. And, and this idea, uh, other than I think some of the most uh, common statements or arguments or questions that I hear was, how did Jesus pray to himself in the garden? And another one is, well, Stephen saw you know Jesus on the right hand of God. So there's obviously two uh gods or or two beings um and these these scriptures here i think clarify that but, but understanding what that meant the right hand um is important but the book of mormon is even clearer without having to understand hebrew uh, customs and things at that time or the culture it just yeah. plainly states what we what we need to know and that one in alma was was good too on the previous slide it's kind of the same thing but being judged at the end by by all three the father the son and the holy ghost one god yes yeah exactly and and then in third nephi 5 we get jesus 
teach and i'm sorry these are all the rlds references I, I didn't have time i didn't take time rather to go back and get the lds but but you get the same message and jesus speaking of himself the father and the son and the holy ghost are one and i am in the father and the father and me and the father and i are one um and, and mormon concludes you know the same idea to dwell in the presence of god in his kingdom to sing ceaseless praises the choirs above unto the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, which is one God. So, um, have you ever thought about singing praises to the Holy Ghost? That's just <laughs> I haven't even mentioned or thought about. I don't. I don't think about that. But that's what it says there in the Scripture. It, it oh, elevates wow. the Holy Ghost just to the same status as the Father and the Son. Yeah, um, I, and it's like because of these images, these paradigms are hard to let go of. You know, I'm I'm still in my mind trying to picture like three separate people sitting there, and it's like. It really isn't what it means. You know, it means that the unity of God and his and in, in the omnipotence of Elohim and the mercy of, of Adonai the Son and in the presence of the Holy Ghost. Um I love how, you know, getting back to the previous podcast, I, I wish I understood the Hebrew better because in Genesis one, two, when you have, you know, God literally hovering over the earth. And, and then life starts to abound from the earth. That's the presence of the Holy Ghost. You know, we, all life exists because the Holy Ghost is present. We don't know what it's like not to have the Holy Ghost present to any degree. That's the definition of death. But every, you know, above the earth, at the surface of the earth, below the earth, life exists on every level. And whether you're a plant or an animal or a human, and it's because God's presence exists. And anyhow, I just... That, but that's through the Holy Ghost. You know, it's like I don't think we give the Holy Ghost enough credit, not as a separate being, but just as this life giving entity of God, which is who He is and what He is. Well, anyhow, um, that's really all I wanted to say about that from before. Um, that the Book of Mormon teaches God, the Son, the Holy Ghost are one, nothing, nothing more, nothing less. Jesus is this physical presence of God. And he touches us by his spirit, by the Holy Ghost. And that's that's how it, it is. Um, if you, Corey, if you were having a discussion with a, a Christian friend or brother, not part of the Restoration, and they asked you, well, what do you, do you believe in the Trinity? What would you say? I would just re read to them the Book of Mormon in, in one of these verses, probably. I, you know, I, I just, when... When I hear that word Trinity, I feel like I'm being set up because it's like it's being asked to assume something that's already untrue. First, because the word Trinity doesn't appear in the Bible, it's kind of like, hey, let's create another set of rules. Now, what do you think about this rule? And it's like, well, you know, I don't know. I object to the word Trinity, I guess, in that regard. Right. And it's it's just a word, and it I think it takes on different meanings through time as even as christianity evolves they 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 evolve in the way they define it some definitions i hear of i would say i absolutely agree but that word has some baggage as well um it seems like some protestants and, and christians have evolved over time um i know the bible project that we've discussed many times is a great ministry um absolutely teach the godhead exactly as the book of mormon is i don't know if they would call it the trinity or not but the way they've taught it is is straight out of the book of mormon and that's that's a huge kind of mainstream ministry um yeah but yeah it would be amazing if if there was a time in our lives where we could not have a word evoke an idea that takes us down the wrong path and it's like you know you mention trinity then all of a sudden you get 
people talking about the Trinity, then you get books written on the Trinity and you get people dying over it. It becomes the hill they want to die on for the Trinity. And it's like, what if it was all the wrong idea to begin with? Wouldn't that be cool if those things didn't exist? I think that's a little bit of what seeing eye to eye at some future day actually means is mm. that our minds don't get controlled in that aspect. Isn't that the truth? Yeah, we've we've discussed that on a number of occasions. If you're teaching a class and 100 people in the room and you bring up a word, all of the boom, if you could see the little bullets over their heads like the cartoons and see what yeah. their minds are thinking, that there, there's many different ideas that come that's just triggered by a word or a scripture we grew up with. And yeah. so that's constantly uh, re- Renewing, I guess, is the word renewing our mind by reading the truth and asking the spirit to embed that truth in our heart. That constant renewing our mind is so important um, because right. of these false ideas that, that come upon us as we walk through this life. You know, in the RLDS version of the restoration, I don't, at least in my lifetime, <clears throat> I've never seen a place or time where we are challenged to start discerning between scriptures it's kind of like we've been given you know we, we print them all in one manual the three in one here's your inspired version here's your book of mormon here's your doctrine and covenants or your quad. it's all true right and, and and it's like we've never been challenged that well some of it's true and some of it might not be and it's like boy you start even just mentioning that and suddenly you're cast out but i i think ultimately this is what jesus has been warning us about forever you know this the ideas of the precepts of men in it the book of mormon even says even the humble people are misled you know the, the ones who are trying their best because they're taught by the precepts of men and i tell you now I, I feel like i see this more clearly and it's all around us you know it's it's me too i i don't want to be misled but i think precepts since my youth have caused me to think a certain way and i I just I spend every morning before sunrise with my nose in the Book of Mormon, and I love it because I, I feel like it's giving me a refreshing view of what life really is. And anyhow, I just I just am here to share it. That's what I want to do. But uh, we appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. I I asked you this morning how how much time does this take to put together PowerPoints, and I know you would never. Uh, you would never want that to be pointed out, but it's, it is time consuming and it has, to, uh, it's only driven by a love, the love that you have for the words and the truth that, that allows you to consistently teach and share with others. And so I know many are thankful for that, but. Well, I, I appreciate you saying that. I, I feel inadequate in that, like for this PowerPoint, I really haven't put much time into it, put a lot of time studying and, and reading and then sometimes I feel like I get so deep into it, it's hard to get back out to that 30,000 foot view and, and make something that just gives an overview of it. Um, but, and that's my next slide here is my purpose isn't to expound and go deep into things of Mormonism. And I'm not using that word to be offensive, but just things that seem to center in the LDS world of thinking. I, I really want to just teach what the Book of Mormon teaches, but I have to bring up some of these topics. I, I'm not a scholar. I, I don't, I could be wrong in some of these things I'm saying. And if I am, it's just, I'm not trying to be factually incorrect. I'm, I'm just not as deep and well-versed, but from what I understand, you know, what I'd like to say is in the LDS world, LDS culture kind of conditions the believers to believe that everything Brigham Young and Joseph Smith said, those, they were all aligned, you know, Joseph Smith, the second, the teachings of Brigham Young, that everything was aligned. Everything was in agreement. Um, 
our LDS or reorganized, you know, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, you know, about since the 1860s, started rejecting Brigham Young, but assumed Joseph was right and that Brigham was simply becoming increasingly corrupt. But what I'm seeing is that both were were wrong and not not completely and not at the beginning. But what happened was that, um, well, let me just make a couple other statements. You know, the RLDS are loath to suggest that Joseph Smith was ever mistaken or guilty. I mean, you just don't hear that. But they they kind of want to point their finger at, at Brigham and say, well, he was he was guilty. But in the RLDS world, I mean, no one wants to talk about something like baptism for the dead. Uh, if you go back to something we've discussed before, that in truth, Joseph's only gift was to translate the Book of Mormon, and he was not to pretend any other gift. That brings a lot of things up in a different light. And potentially that later revelations came from his, Joseph, Brigham, their own spirits. And this is where the Gentile traditions come in. This is where things like, you know, if the men were being led by their own spirits, you know, baptism of the dead becomes a prime example. Polygamy becomes a prime example. And and there's a little process by which all this happens too that I want to throw out here in a couple more slides. But, I look um, at I was just going to point out that first statement, Corey, RLDS are, are very loath to suggest Joseph Smith was ever mistaken or guilty. And I know that's that's a, a feeling that's on both sides of the aisle, LDS to hold, I think, a lot to that. And the fact that now there's there's so much information out there that um, people are studying and, and realizing polygamy maybe didn't come from Joseph. It was a, a horrible doctrine. Um it's almost like in some cases, Joseph becomes even more of a, a superhero or an idol because now the polygamy thing's off the table. It, it, it kind of elevates him in, in some ways. I've seen this, but what it says, they simply refuse to discuss difficult subjects like baptism for the dead. Uh, and my good friend recently had a conversation uh, and um, kind of having his feet held to the fire by a friend, a traveling companion of his, they've done ministry together and, and, um, and he brought up baptism for the dead. And the response was, well, you know, Joseph is, is gone. He, he didn't have enough time to comment on that doctrine. Um, and we just don't understand, we don't understand it, but if he says it, it's true and we have to agree to it and we'll understand it at some point. And that's kind of just a really recent, example of that first statement up there that um G joseph just can't be wrong or off about anything yeah. um and i think for our listeners that it might be good to restate you know, Corey and i were both raised rlds and he's he attends a congregation it's, it's still community of christ but um opposed to more of the older traditions uh, or teachings of the church and and i've since left the RLDS church quite some time ago. And I just go to an independent, uh, what they call independent restoration branch where we worship with other people, but we don't have any hierarchy or authority over our independent branch. Um, I think that's good to, to mention. Um, so people understand our background and we're yeah. not, pointing, not pointing fingers at the LDS, but looking at our own history as well. Yeah. Wouldn't it have been great if somewhere in the book of Mormon it said, you know, 
Yeah, we're the Nephites and we've got our own misgivings and we're weak, but someday the Gentiles are going to come on the scene and they're going to take over and you're going to get new information, things you've never heard before. You know, wouldn't have that been great if the Book of Mormon said that, but it never does. It never implies anything like that. It says, you know, yeah, don't put your trust in the arm of flesh, but it, it gets more specific. You know, Mormon and Moroni write and they say, hey, Gentiles, we've seen your day. We see the pollutions that you've become, you know, spiritually corrupt. And, um, <laughs> you know, and then when you have the Book of Mormon, you, you kind of think, oh, that's pointing to everyone outside of us. But it's like, no, it's it's pointing at us as well. We we aren't to trust in the arm of flesh. And the people who wrote the Book of Mormon, they were holy. They they were a different caliber of people. Again, I, I just, you know, couldn't sit in the same room with these guys. I'd love to hear their discussion, but I wouldn't have a word to say. And, <laughs> and yet we've had, you know, generations now to put other men in the Gentile world, their ideas above the Nephite writers. And it's like, that wasn't how it was supposed to be. So, you know, I, I don't know. Um, so this baptism for the dead thing, I, I've read a few things and I came across an article and the link is here. You can find it in a few spots. If you just search this origin for the baptism of the dead doctrine by Johnny Stevenson and Michael R. Marquat, you'll find this in its, I don't know, 10 or more pages long, but I, <clears throat> I've read this and what I'd like to do, excuse me, <clears throat> I just like to summarize a couple of the things they say out of this. And I, I hope I'm not getting this wrong, but uh, again, what, what this does, you know, and, and backing up to this, the reason I'm sharing this is because if if you're not informed, you just tend to think, well, Joseph Smith provided a revelation on baptism for the dead, and that's why the church practiced it, you know, just like a revelation on anything else. Well, that's not true. And, and what is true is a, a process that occurred. And this process for baptism of the dead, I think, speaks to other process situations that affected the thinking of Joseph. And, and this is how this kind of came to pass. Um, in in the eight, late 1830s, Brigham Young, other missionaries were in England, and there was a woman named Anne Booth, and she had a dream. And in this dream, and I'm just way paraphrasing, she basically sees some people who had been dead, like John Wesley, you know, being baptized. And all of a sudden, they start just getting these words associated, dead people baptized. Hmm. Well, Brigham advertises this idea back to Joseph Smith. And so... Later, after this, Joseph Smith is speaking at a funeral service, uh, Seymour Brunson. This isn't the King Follett sermon. This is a different one. Joseph Smith, too, says something about baptism for the dead. But again, it had just been suggested. Uh, and then, then after that Seymour Brunson sermon, <clears throat> there's a woman named Jane, C Jane Seymour, and she puts it together that her son, who died before he ever heard this gospel, could be proxy baptized. And she literally like rides her horse into the river and is calling that a baptism. And Joseph Smith approves of this. Now, I just summarized about 10 or 12 pages that you can read in detail about this. But <clears throat> it didn't start as a revelation. It literally all came about by conversation. Okay. And then after that, Joseph sort of approves of this one lady, Jane Seymour, literally being baptized by proxy for her son. And then 
Joseph later writes a revelation for baptism of the dead. <clears throat> if you're in the RLDS world, it's section 110 of the Doctrine and Covenants, which, you know, I, I find this interesting that I think it was back in the early 1970s, the World Church Conference of the RLDS Church found it necessary to have that Doctrine and Covenants revelation not removed completely from the Book of Mormon, but taken out of the series, you know, the one, two, three, four, five, all the way through 144, whatever we had at the time. And they move it to the appendix. Oh, and the Doctrine and Covenants, right? Yeah, you said Book of Mormon. I know it was a, just a... Oh, no, 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 I meant Doctrine and Covenants. I'm yeah. sorry if I've said Book of Mormon. No, just a... Right. Thanks, yeah. But, no, that's all I really want to say is that, you know, they're, they're all of a sudden saying, well, we don't think this is true, but that's how the RLDS handled it. Again, they don't really want to have the discussion, but someone was already thinking, hmm, this doesn't sound right. And so it's removed, and there's, uh, you know... What I what I find about this, and this is true in our Gentile culture today, you know, if there's a topic that for some could be, you know, if I ask someone to talk about the benefits of homosexuality, you know, I mean, <laughs> and I said, you know, for this 40 years ago, well, people would have abhorred that, you know, because it wasn't common. But this is this is how a process works in our day now. It, first, you abhor, and then you tolerate it. And then you embrace it. And and Satan is patient. You know, he's got more patience than we do. He's he's willing to spend generations working on the minds of people. And so these ideas now become embraced by the society. And I, I'm going extreme with something like homosexuality, but but you get the idea. Well, so with Gentiles and our revelations, it's a little bit the same. Here, <clears throat> Joseph is an idea is suggested, all right comes from a woman in England who had a dream, and the apostles make news about it. Then Joseph's considering it, and then someone does something, and he approves it, and then a revelation happens. You know, That's not only what happened for baptism of the dead, but it kind of happened with polygamy as well. It's like they were pressing him for answers to questions that came from their adulterous hearts on polygamy, and then all of a sudden we get a revelation. Um, that isn't how... God worked in the Book of Mormon. You know, I, it's just not how it is. But this process came from the hearts and minds of people. And so, again, I, you could want to crucify me for saying that, but my real point is just sharing what does the Book of Mormon say about this. And so here's, here's a couple facts. Regarding baptism for the dead, Jesus never mentions baptism for the dead in the Bible or the Book of Mormon. It's not there in his words. He, he doesn't touch the subject. Now, Paul mentions something about the dead being baptized, but we have to understand the historical context. He wasn't supporting an idea of baptism for the dead. He was speaking to it regarding in an idea of scorn. It was with contempt. Um, I have a document, and I forgot to put it in here. I can get it for us later. But this all leads to the Gentiles profoundly misunderstanding what Paul was talking about. Basically, there was a small group of people, and I don't remember if they were displaced Jews or not, but the or if they were new Gentiles. But when someone was dying, literally on on their deathbed, if they hadn't been baptized, they were they would have someone who was like healthy and alive 
lay under their bed and they would ask this person, do you want to be baptized? And this person may have even been semi-conscious, but they would have this person laying under the bed, speak for them and say, yes, I want to be baptized. And so some, some person would go decide they were going to be baptized, whether that was by immersion or sprinkling, who, who knows, but it was, they thought it was being kind and doing something out of the goodness of their heart. Well, Paul wasn't supporting this. It wasn't anything that he was teaching as a practice. It wasn't something going on in mainstream Christianity since Jesus' death. It was this small little thing that was happening among a few people. Like so many ideas, they start to evolve and they grow. And in the minds of some people, they become consuming. And so that little thing that was happening in the New Testament wasn't even really related to what was happening in Nauvoo, but the words were the same. So they, they kind of conjecture, well, it should all be the same thing, baptism for the dead. And all of a sudden, it's this little snowball that starts gaining momentum. And so now we've got Joseph beginning to teach this in Nauvoo um, as if it was not only something to be believed, but something that without it, they couldn't be saved in, in heaven. I mean, this is the magnitude that it took on. And I'm going to skip over this Paul's day. So there's a couple other scriptures. I, I guess I'll get to the scriptures here in a minute, but you know, one of the things in this, I say, sit down for this because the book of Mormon doesn't even teach a prison house. Now I look back over the last few years and I've kind of taught prison house things because I, I was taught it when I was young. And now I realize there's no mention of a prison house in the in the Book of Mormon. Uh, the Book of Mormon only te teaches repentance in this life. That's pretty sobering because I think we've all kind of felt, oh, man, great thing. God in his mercy, he's giving an opportunity for people who haven't heard. But see, the Book of Mormon teaches something even better. And this is one of the reasons why the whole concept of baptism for the dead is contrary to the Book of Mormon. The Book of Mormon teaches that the atonement, that Jesus' death on the cross, covers those who knew no law without baptism. Right? Baptism is only for the repentant, and baptism is only for the living on this earth. Um, <laughs> to, to, to even suggest that somehow people made some decision later and now they need to be baptized in this earth, or we can't be with them in eternity, these are all just ideas of man. Um, it's it's not necessary. But I don't know. Did you want to speak to any of this, Mike? I've got a couple of scriptures I want to throw up, but I, I don't know well, what you're talking about. I like, what, <clears throat> I like how you're tying this in because this is the point of, of these videos is what does the Book of Mormon teach? And um, the fact that there's really no need for it because of the story that we get in the Book of Mormon about eternity or eternal life, or I guess I should say life after our physical death here. Um, and it that's the that's the important note, I think, from from these videos is that uh, there's no need for it if we would just focus on the doctrine in the Book of Mormon. Yes. I like uh, and and treading very lightly here because I, I know and I've talked to and had people on that have talked about their work in the temple and, 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 um, and I don't want to be offensive to anyone in their religious, um, culture, but our, our mission and our, and our purpose, uh, even doing restore gospel podcast is to bring out the doctrine of the book of Mormon, 
hold to that doctrine and be transformed by that doctrine. That's the main purpose. And so at times it, it rubs against our traditions, but it's not judging anyone or putting anyone down. It's, it's with uh, open arms and, and really a soft heart for myself that's been taken away by false traditions and others that are involved in those. And I'm still trying to restructure my mind and thinking through the Holy Spirit as I read the word to understand God as he is. Um, but, but we see how quickly and whether you believe in temples or not, uh, I'm still studying temples. The idea that the Kirtland Temple, um, whatever you think that was or its purpose, from Kirtland to Nauvoo, the huge change in the religion and the purpose of a temple, completely different. I mean, there was no mention of ordinances or baptismal founts in Kirtland in the first temple. Uh, and, and just in a number of a handful of years, uh, you look at how quickly this this simple gospel that was restored in the Book of Mormon, um, the simple truths about Jesus and God, how quickly we were in the midst of a completely different religion, not even close yeah. to replicating the truth in the Book of Mormon. In just a few years that we're building these giant buildings and um, temples with a purpose of what? I mean, you look back at the temple and, and the in Moses's time and the, the the structures and the Holy of Holies, and it was a place that people had to go to interact with God. All of a sudden, this this new, brand new religion of America is into something that's just crazy. I mean, it, it, it just blows my mind how quickly, with this new birth of truth, if anything, you would think you would see a really just a grassroots you know, practical, beautiful picture of who Jesus is in God and his idea for our salvation, how quickly that was just obliterated by building buildings and having to have buildings in order to do certain ordinances or you're not saved. And and here's yeah. this, it was just a very quick transformation. We see how quickly things progress. You're right. It's, it starts with an idea and then boom, it takes off. And now it's it's the norm and it's accepted. Um, yes. Yes. It happens so quickly. I, I love how you summarize that because, you know, this idea of baptism for the dead, you know, we start getting the language of, well, if you do it this way, you're acceptable to me. If you don't do it this way, you're not acceptable to me. And it's like, well, everyone wants to be on God's good side. So let's hurry up and make sure we, we do all these things correctly. But it's like, again, I hear these things and it's like, it just, it, it isn't the language that we find in the Book of Mormon when God's presenting himself to, you know, he, he always presents himself to, as all powerful. When I, when I read these things out of the doctrine and covenants, it starts to make God sound fussy and agitated and, and just, you know, maybe, you know, just small in his wishes or, or like, you know, he, he didn't get his way. So he's going to pout or something. And it's like, Oh my gosh. I mean, I hate to even use those words in the same sentence to talk about God, but the book of Mormon presents God as he is, I believe is as much as we can understand that. And, I, I see some of the other language, and I just realized that it, it's it's a contrast to, to the truth we get in the Book of Mormon. Yeah, so, it's a movement towards uh, back towards the Old Testament because you do read about this fussy God, or or uh, where you didn't exactly keep His word, things happened to you, and it was all a result of this this law that was you know wasn't wasn't the ideal law, you know, whether you're picking up sticks on the wrong day and you die or whatever, you see that type of uh, schoolmaster law that was not to be 
forever in place, but for a people that continually turn their, their back on the Lord. But man, the New Testament and Jesus's atonement, which I, I see you're moving into here, uh, gets rid of all that. And to go back under that type of, uh, you know, go back under that thumb of, of this God that, you know, you don't, you don't swerve or vary or terrible things happen. You have to, it, it's just a different, a different way of existence. But then we put ourselves right back under, under that type of, uh, God and it's, and we see what happens. So but I see you're bringing up the atonement here. <clears throat> yeah. So I, I agree with every, everything you just said. Um, so one of the things that the book of Mormon also teaches is that, um, you know, even if it were true, it's not needed. And, and the reason is because the book of Mormon teaches that the atonement covers the sin of those who knew no law. I mean, and, and by by doing that, I'll, I'll give you a couple of verses that state this. It it just makes you ask the question: Well, why are we doing this? And the idea is because it just evolved among our people. Um, so our people saw the same thing, you know, this suggestion. Then there was a tolerance. Then then they embraced this idea. Um, a little bit from section one ten. Now this is the revelation that was removed to the appendix of the the RLDS Doctrine and Covenants, and just taking a few verses out of it, Paul, uh, Joseph Smith is writing, and this is a letter, okay? This isn't really given by commandment, but we, we hear the voice of Joseph Smith in this, and this is really interesting to me. He says, now in relation to baptism for the dead, I will give you another quotation of Paul, 1 Corinthians 15, 29, else what shall they do which are baptized for the dead if the dead rise not at all? Why are they then baptized for the dead? Well, he gives this as if Paul is promoting baptism for the dead, which historically he wasn't, and we already covered that. Then it continues, and again, in connection with this quotation, I will give you a quotation from one of the prophets who had his eye fixed on the restoration of the priesthood, the glories to be revealed in the last days, and in an especial manner, this most glorious of all subjects belonging to the everlasting gospel, namely the baptism for the dead. <clears throat> see how this works? It's kind of like, well, let me give you a New Testament scripture. Well, the New Testament scripture mentions the words baptized for the dead, but is it really promoting it? No. But then let me give you an Old Testament scripture. Now this Old Testament scripture never mentions baptism for the dead, but by association, you know, the, the author here, who's Joe Smith, wants you to believe it's true. We saw the same thing in the in the days when the saints were appealing to the governor of Missouri after their expulsion, and they write Joseph Smith writes this letter, and it's like the first couple points he makes come from the scripture, but then he says, and all the prophets have talked about how you know Zion's going to be built in the last days. Well, that's where it starts to depart. No, all the prophets didn't talk about Zion. All the prophets talked about the redemption of Jesus, how he would be the atonement of sin. Well. If you accept that little half-truth, then all the other statements after subsequently depart from the truth. And what you're left with is the idea of man that you think is Scripture, but it isn't. And this, this is all of a sudden what's happening is he says, well, there's a prophet who's talking about this baptism for the dead. And, and what he ends up stating in 17b is, for Malachi says in the last chapter 5 and 6, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to the fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. 
Well, where in that verse is baptism of the dead mentioned? It's not. It's nowhere in there. But <clears throat> by association, Joseph wants you to believe this is, and he says, I might have rendered a plainer translation to this, but it's sufficient to suit my purpose as it stands. And then here he gives you his thought. It is sufficient to know in this case that the earth will be smitten with a curse unless there is a welding link of some kind or other between the fathers and the children upon some subject or other. And behold, what is that subject? It is the baptism for the dead. For without them, we cannot be made perfect. Neither can they without us be made perfect. Isn't that an interesting progression to all of a sudden go from the New Testament and then take the Old Testament and, and then say, okay, and then this is what it means, and bring up something that's, I mean, it would have been nice if Malachi said, and, you're, and the baptism of the dead will unite your fathers to the children, but it doesn't. But we're led to believe that's what it meant because, again, we are not allowed to question Joseph Smith. Um, here's the the problem with this is that it's contrary to the Book of Mormon. I mean, there's a hundred things I could say about, about all this, but one of the things is, you know, if we if we as the RLDS Church put this whole Doctrine and Covenants section 110 in the appendix, then what does that say about Joseph's assessment of Malachi? You know, now we have to say, well, Joseph, maybe that wasn't what Malachi was saying. And, I mean, maybe it'd be a whole other podcast to talk about what did Malachi really imply by this. I think it's something much greater. I think the hearts to the children and the children to the fathers <clears throat> has a lot more to do with what the Book of Mormon teaches about the restoration of Israel. And and again, that's a different subject. But yeah, we're we're in an area here that's that's you're right. It branches off into a lot of um, false notions and and things that Joseph focused on in Malachi and that scripture and and. There's doctrines about Elijah and people appearing, and, and we can't get into that now, but uh, kind of become obsessed with what that meant, the turning of the children and the, you know, to the hearts of the fathers and the way they interpreted that in Malachi. I, I know there's been great videos out there on that. Rob Fotheringham has a great one on um, um, Elijah and that that revelation about him. And so, yeah, th this doctrine here, it's you see, though, what the incorrect interpretation of the Bible, making it about them and the church and what was happening at that time that this new church with new ordinances and ways to salvation uh, all being incorporated and meshed together. And I love these type of things because it kind of shows, like you said, where there was an idea presented, it was tolerated and then accepted and then embraced that, mm -hmm to find some of those beginnings is, is kind of enlightening, I think. Yeah, it is. And, you know, the, the whole revelation, this was a letter about it, but the revelation later that speaks to it, again, <clears throat> it's just made by these associations. And uh, I, I don't know. I mean, it just... I don't know if you're getting into one section 107 in RLDS, but it was also it was the one where they were commanded to build a font or their or even their baptisms of the dead wouldn't be acceptable anymore. Right. And, so, and so I I didn't I didn't include that. And it's like I had I spent some more time preparing this. I mean, I, I guess you can just say I was a little lax in this. Yeah, all that stuff just goes in a hundred directions. In fact, I've got a, a document. I don't have it pulled up right now, but this whole um Brigham Young, as soon as Joseph was dead, says, you can expect to start hearing things that you didn't hear before. 
<clears throat> so that gets, but these are things Joseph shared with me, but you weren't ready to hear basically. Well, once Joseph's dead, you know, this Nauvoo temple money revenue collecting goes into full gear and he's just playing on the heartstrings of people who just lost their profit. And it's like, you know, if you want to honor Joseph, you need to send your money in and send it to us 12. Well, you know, like 11 of the 12 were practicing polygamy at the time. This is going to help them feed their wives, I'm sure. But <clears throat> but this set a cycle that continues to this day where it's like, hey, what a great way to generate money. First, tell people, oh, well, you've got to be saved by doing all these things, including paying a full 10% of your income. Well, you know, that's actually debatable. And, and maybe we'll have to spend another podcast talking about that. But if you get people saying, and you can't be live in heaven unless you're married in the temple or sealed in the temple, um, and we're going to build these temples so we can have our dead baptized because we want to be with them, don't you need to be faithful? Well, of course. And, you know, to have your your bishop or your pastor interview you and say, well, did you make a full tithe this year, Mike? You know, and it's like, those are, those are questions I know from our LDS friends that they get asked. And so, uh, why wouldn't you end up with a church with hundreds of billions of dollars in reserve when you place eternal life as a stipulation on following these certain rules? And that all creates this closed loop of with the temple and then baptism for the dead in the middle. Get people eagerly thinking, hey, I want to make sure my dead, my ancestors are, are accounted for in the eternal life. So we need to be baptizing for them. I do appreciate the great work that LDS, the LDS people have done with Ancestry.org, by the way. I use it all the time and study my own family history, but not for the purpose of baptizing the dead. This is just an outcropping, you know, it's a byproduct of, of this. But my, <clears throat> but I mean, I got to give them credit from a business standpoint. You created a great cycle, you know, you create something that perpetuates itself by getting people interested in their loved ones life after death, being eternally sealed to each other. All these concepts, they fit perfectly together to get people to keep giving and keep believing and don't question. And, you know, again, I I, I just think the Book of Mormon teaches something different. And this is, I'm, I'm going to just wrap up with these few scriptures here, Micah. There's a whole lot more, I guess, I probably could have shared, but I just want to say this. The Book of Mormon teaches that this life became the probationary state, the time to prepare to meet God to prepare for the endless state, which is spoken of us after the resurrection of the dead. And notice after the day of this day of life, which is given us to prepare for eternity, behold, if we do not improve our time while in this life, then cometh the night of darkness, wherein there can be no labor performed. Now there's, this is contrary to even what I believed most of my life, even up to a couple of years ago, <clears throat> I always thought there was some kind of a, a prison house opportunity, but the Book of Mormon never presents it that way. In, in fact, we get this from Jacob saying, and, and find woe unto all they that die in their sins, for they shall return to God and behold his face and remain in their sins. You know, if you leave this life in a sinful state, according to Jacob, that's it. And, and Moroni concludes in the final couple pages of the Book of Mormon, woe unto them that shall do these things away and die for they die in their sins and they cannot be saved in the kingdom of God. You know, he doesn't say somehow unless they're dead are baptized for, and then you're redeemed. He says, I speak it according to the words of Christ. See, J Jesus spoke 
contrary to baptism of the dead. He said, this is the time of life to repent. This is the time of life to prepare. If you die at the end of this life and you've been rebellious against God, that's it. And so that's what Jesus taught. And so I, I read these words and I, and I see that there, there isn't the opportunity that I think we were led to believe. It, it, it seems to be things that got added in by, by Joseph later. Uh, I know that speaks against a lot of traditions, but this is what the Book of Mormon teaches. Um, the other aspect of this is simply that there isn't a need for baptism of the dead because the Book of Mormon teaches the atonement satisfieth the demands of his justice upon all those who hath not the law given unto them that they are delivered from that awful monster, death and hell and the devil and the lake of fire and brimstone, which is endless torment. See, I was always taught, well, God is fair because he's creating this prison house opportunity for people who rebelled against him to turn their hearts. But what's fair about God is, no, he said, people who die without a law, they're, they're covered by the atonement. Um, <clears throat> and I don't claim to state that Jesus has given all of his commands here. I just don't think the ideas that have come forth by Gentiles in the last days have been, you know, cogent with these ideas that came out of the Book of Mormon. Um, right. But, and there's some things well, I was going to say, things that aren't stated here, because I've, I've heard the argument. Well, so, so it's better just to not know the law and get a free pass into heaven. And it doesn't say that either. And no. so you don't read that in. We know God is just and fair, but, uh, but, be careful to start implementing and, and, and inserting man-made ideas about the process that comes later in Revelations to be careful that we're not adding to the Book of Mormon or trying to fill in gaps with our own ideas. And what I wanted to state when, you know, it doesn't, to me, it doesn't matter if Brigham taught polygamy or Joseph or, and I know there's tons of research and history and videos and podcasts on the sources and who said what and who did what to me, the most important thing is just the concept, the teaching, the idea. It, 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 to me, it doesn't matter who inserted it, how it became part. It's just going back to the gospel and the book of Mormon and seeing if the idea, if the teaching, no matter necessarily who brought it forth, even though in reality, we give much more weight to anything that Joseph brought forth as, as the traditions of him being the one, you know, one prophet over the church. But really, it's not the it's not where it came from. The fact that it's that it's taught and followed and believed, and the concept isn't coherent with the Book of Mormon is the the main point. So I yes. know, that's why we're not really. I don't think we don't go too much into who said what or is it valid or whatever. It's the concept and the idea still being promoted that needs to people to understand that it's not part of the gospel. Yeah, exactly. I appreciate you bringing that up because my, my point is just say, hey, what does the Book of Mormon teach? And I I can't speak to the depth and breadth of all the things that have been believed by our people and still believe. But I, I do know that the Book of Mormon, what it teaches is true. Um, and I, I'm just going to conclude with this is from Abinadi. I mean, these were his last words before they executed him. He said, uh, there are those that have part in the first resurrection, and these are they that have died before Christ came in their ignorance, uh, having salvation declared unto them. Uh, he says, and thus the Lord bringeth about the restoration of these, and they have a part in the first resurrection, or hath eternal life, being redeemed by the Lord. See, there, 
the eternal life of those who've gone by who weren't rebellious is is already a done deal according to this um the, the idea that somehow a baptism that we would do that would only be done in the you know last 190 years or so was going to somehow validate for billions of people who went on before us and that's why we need to build so many temples i mean it's it's just contrary <coughs> sorry but i i don't have any other thing i really want to say about it i mean there i guess there's more we could say about it but it just um I don't know. It's sad to me. It just points out how far we've come and how how far we've dropped. I guess in terms of this whole idea of the, this this departing from the truth of the Book of Mormon, you know, and 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 this church we've created in our own image that isn't the truth that was originally taught. It's it's something that. I mean, if, if we were actually able to observe the Nephites and their belief and their religion, I think we'd see something that's quite a bit different than what we practice. Right. Well, I think we'll catch back up with filling in uh, a lot of these areas, uh, probably as we get into what does the Book of Mormon teach about eternal life. And it'll be even more clear that um, for anyone maybe still wondering about this ordinance of this baptism of the dead, um, We'll, we'll fill in some of the gaps there when we see the plan of salvation, what the Book of Mormon teaches about it compared to maybe some other doctrines that we've been taught growing up. And we'll see where I think this idea would probably hopefully just kind of become very small and fade away as, as even a notion that it's part of the gospel of Christ. Exactly. And I, I hope, you know, I'm thankful, Mike, that, you know, we can kind of take some time to go through this. I think when we've discussed it in past times, we were I, we weren't hurried, but I don't think we took our time, and I'm I'm glad that we are because I think these things are worth clarifying because there are listeners out here who who wonder and who may have not have even ever taken time to question. But um, our our real point is to teach. Hey, this is the Book of Mormon, and it teaches a pure, plain gospel, and it answers the right questions. Um, you can always object with questions that weren't. It's kind of like the Trinity question. It's like, well. The word doesn't appear in the Bible, so what am I supposed to say about it? You know, I'm not going to write a discourse on something that doesn't appear. And the same thing for things like baptism of the dead. It wasn't part of the original doctrine. It isn't now. It's become a doctrine because that's what we've made it. But we, we hope to try to teach, and that might come with difficulty to, to accept, you know, what was the true doctrine that was presented by the Book of Mormon? And what can it offer you and what can it offer me? And hopefully that's happiness and eternal life. Well, amen. I appreciate you bringing this up and coming back today. Thank you, uh, sir. Till next time. God bless. All right. Bye-bye. Thanks. <laughs>